0: The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
0: Hi,
2: Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post.
1: How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from Post. Out. Hey, it's Dave
2: Ferrand
3: from Post. Have
1: you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 19th. Today, changes to the federal prison system. Preparing police and community relationships and taking over the holiday cooking. Around two million Americans are currently in prisons and jails across the country. Out of that two million, About 181,000 are serving time in federal prisons. And that number could be reduced, thanks to a bill called the First Step Act, which passed in the Senate on Tuesday night.
0: On this vote, the yeas are 87, the nays are 12. On this motion to concur in the House amendment with an amendment has been agreed to.
1: The bill is expected to head to the House of Representatives on Thursday. And Post reporter Sung Min Kim says that if it passes there, then it has a really good shot at getting actually signed into law.
3: The fact that you could get a coalition that includes Paul Ryan, Donald Trump, Dick Durbin, Cory Booker, and the ACLU and the Koch brothers, it's really remarkable.
1: How did this actually happen? Because it seems like it's all unfolded extremely fast.
3: Well, let's rewind way back. We started hearing a lot about it under the Trump administration recently, but there's been a small coalition of senators who have been at this for years and years. And it's been this powerful, odd couple, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who's a Republican, and Dick Durbin, a liberal Democrat. But they had one shared goal, which was to really overhaul the prison system and the U.S. sentencing laws. They both felt that mandatory minimum sentences... Particularly for these nonviolent offenses, these drug offenses just weren't simply fair. You know, they may have supported them back in the 1990s, but they're looking at the impact and saying, this isn't the best way to, you know, essentially do our criminal justice system. So they got together. There's been this unusual coalition both inside Capitol Hill and all these advocacy groups nationwide and got this big deal together under the Obama administration that is actually much more expansive than the bill that is going to be sent to the President this week. What has changed that has made this much more palatable for Republicans? What really changed this year and what happened under the Obama administration, first of all, was that it never came up for a vote. The bill was ready to go. Mitch McConnell just decided not to put it on the Senate floor. So these, you know, Grassley and Durbin and their people and their team and other senators decided to try again under the Trump administration. And they found a very powerful ally in the White House, not necessarily the president himself, but Jared Kushner, the senior advisor to the president, the president's son-in-law, who has a very broad portfolio, as we know. But this, is the issue where he's seen the most success on. Jared Kushner has talked a lot about how his personal experiences, seeing his father go to prison, had really motivated him to pursue a more fair, a more just criminal justice system. So once the uh, senators on Capitol Hill kind of locked arms with Jared and his team and started hashing out a compromise, that's really where you started to see the wheels turn a little bit.
1: So what does this bill actually do?
3: So there's two sections of the bill, the legislation of the laws that actually give you your sentence, and then the back end, which changes and reforms the federal prison system to reduce recidivism rates. The front part where you relax some of these mandatory minimum sentencing laws, those have been traditionally very controversial with Republicans because it's the idea that you're letting people early out of prison who maybe should have stayed in prison. How many people could this bill affect? So it is not a major wide-scale system, because remember, the vast, vast majority of inmates in this country in prisons or in jails are in state-run jails, and this only affects the federal system. So right now, um, as of about mid-December, there were about 180,000 federal inmates. So that is a fraction of the, you know, I, I believe it's 2 million of the people who are in jails or prisons nationwide. The Congressional Budget Office that does these analyses, they had to kind of analyze it in a, in a different way, but they essentially estimate that it could reduce the federal inmate population as much as 53,000 in one year. Some advocates have disputed that figure. It's kind of a difficult thing to determine at this point. But there is no doubt that this, obviously, the way the bill sets up a new system for federal prisons really does give more of these nonviolent offenders who've shown in prison that they have good behavior many more avenues to reduce their time as long as they do keep up that good behavior. And we're expecting the House to pass this... This week. That's fast. That's very fast. They're eager to do it. And remember, this could also be a legacy item for Paul Ryan, the outgoing speaker. He's a budget guy. You know, he's a tax guy. He's a fiscal guy. But on this issue, he has talked about this issue for some time. And he, the speaker, has been in touch constantly with the White House and with these senators working on this bill. And he said, look, once you guys send me something, I will quickly pass it and we will get it onto the White House. That does seem really...
1: Shocking, the idea that criminal justice reform could be like a legacy item for Paul Ryan.
3: But this is something that he has talked about as a way. And it's going back to kind of that compassionate conservatism idea, which is why he had embraced it for some time. It
1: is so rare that we see anything of magnitude pass in Congress. What does this bill and the speed at which it's, it's moving through Congress, what does that tell us about what the next two years could look like under a divided Congress?
3: Well, it shows that if everybody is invested and they do want to get something done, that something can happen. But the reason why it's moving so fast at the end of the year when we're distracted with so many other things, especially on Capitol Hill, is that the people who worked on this bill were actually afraid that once House Democrats came into power, it would break this really delicate bipartisan compromise that people like Chuck Grassley and Dick Durbin had so painstakingly negotiated. Because if you move it a little bit too far to the right, you're going to lose a lot of Democrats. If you move it too far to the left, which people were worried about would happen when House Democrats took charge, then you'll lose a lot of Republicans and potentially even lose the White House. So that explains actually the speed at which why it moves so fast. Thank you so much, Sungman. Thanks for having me.
1: For the last two days, we've been hearing stories by our colleagues in the investigative unit, part of a year-long project called Murder with Impunity. They've been documenting the arrest rates for homicides in 50 of the country's biggest cities. We heard from Cynthia Glover, a woman who lives in New Orleans and who has lost three of her four children to murder. Only one of those cases has led to an arrest.
4: My children is dead people's lives go on, my life stopped.
1: In Indianapolis, the arrest rate for homicides is extremely low, with less than half of all murders solved citywide, a rate that drops to close to zero in some neighborhoods.
4: Indianapolis, unfortunately, has been on the map for homicides. We've seen a steady increase since about 2012.
1: But in Richmond, Virginia, they've made progress in their arrest rate for homicides. And one reason is better community relations.
2: You know, in police departments, we kind of measure our success or failure on crime. And that's the craziest thing
3: when you think about it. What we're starting to do now is measure the number of community contacts that we have.
1: Today, we're talking to the reporters behind these stories about what they've learned from covering unsolved murders in these communities. And I'm sitting here with three of the reporters who have been working on it. Kimberly Kelly. Hello, Steve Rich. Hi, and Wes Lowry. And I'm Martin. I wanted to start with a pretty basic question:
0: Why did you guys want to do this story? We've heard from people who who asked, "Well, why don't folks trust the police? Why are these relationships so desolate? If you have a community that doesn't trust the police or has a severed relationship with the police, it's not just necessarily because of the negatives we think about the police shooting last week or the citizen complaints. It also can be about whether or not those police are meeting the positive expectations of what's expected from this relationship.
2: We decided to take a look at some of the biggest and also most violent cities when it comes to killings across the country. And so we sent public records requests to, at first, 50 of some of the largest cities in the country. And we basically asked the question, where are your killings occurring? Did those murders result in an arrest, and some other demographic
5: information like the race of the victim. What we wanted to do with this was to get more detailed homicide data from these departments than the federal government collects itself. We needed things like the actual geography. We needed things like the closure status, whether there was an arrest or not. But why couldn't you just look to, like, a national database
1: of these kinds of killings to get a sense from there rather than going to all of these individual police departments?
2: No national database exists that has all this information. The information is aggregated and you don't
1: get the exact location of where the killings occurred. So you can't see patterns. They're not seeing that disparity between some neighborhoods getting a lot of attention from police when it comes to solving homicides and some neighborhoods getting.
2: Exactly. What they're looking at is that bottom line number. Did the number of killings go down this year? What do we need to do in the department to decrease that number?
0: One of the first things we did once we'd assembled all this data was we began mapping it. Because, again, a big function of the analysis we wanted to do was to look at how different people living in different parts of the same city might experience justice differently. And so, of course, we looked at things like race and age and gender. But what we were doing is we were plotting all of these homicides across a given city and seeing are there pockets of impunity? Are there places where murder is functionally legal, where there were 10 or 12 or 15 murders over the last decade, but only one or two resulted in arrest, right? We sorted it by neighborhood and zip code so we could see which neighborhoods had not only the highest homicide rates, but also the lowest arrest rates.
1: Why were there those pockets where police weren't solving homicides?
0: So much of homicide and solving homicide revolves around the idea and the question of will someone cooperate with you, right? In almost every case... You mean
1: like will a witness cooperate with you? Yes.
0: Will someone tell you who killed Martine? Because if they won't, (laughs) then Martine's murder doesn't get solved. And because of that, if a relationship on one block is significantly more fractured than two blocks away, well, that second area is going to have a higher likelihood that someone might cooperate than in another.
1: Because I feel like we have this conception maybe from pop culture or from law and order that what happens after someone gets murdered is that a couple of cops are assigned to that murder and they're going to do everything within their power over the next several weeks or months or years to solve that murder and that everyone gets that kind of commitment to justice. But what you're saying is that's not actually true. That's really dependent on where you live within a city.
2: Yes. And I mean, by and large, our data shows that only half of the cases of these killings in these 50 cities led to an arrest. And some departments will say, well, our percentage is, you know, 55% or our percentage is 66%. And then I'll push back and say, you do realize that you're saying you're only solving half of the cases,
1: right? I wouldn't necessarily say 50-50 is a good thing. When you talk about these pockets where you have a high concentration of unsolved murders, are you talking about murders where
5: nobody was convicted for them? We're talking about cases where there was wasn't even an arrest. One of the interesting things about the policing data is when they make an arrest, that's the end of a case. They do not track beyond that. They do not know whether or not a case resulted in a conviction. They just count it as closed by arrest when the prosecutors charged them.
1: Wow. So even that is a pretty low bar, right? Like if you're not even tracking whether people are finally convicted for this murder, you're just trying to track whether someone was arrested. I mean, that doesn't mean that somebody's family got justice. But you're saying that that in a lot of these areas of cities, even an arrest, a single arrest for a murder that might not even
5: result in a conviction, that was pretty rare. Yeah, I mean, we've seen areas where there are 20-plus murders and of 5 to 10% arrest rate, and these are areas where it is highly unlikely if somebody is murdered there again that they will ever solve it wow. is this
1: clearly a race thing that for people who are black and brown in cities that there's a much higher
5: likelihood that their murders will never result in an arrest? We found that in the vast majority of cities that black homicide victims had a a lower arrest rate than white homicide victims. In some, it was stark. In Boston, white homicide victims have an arrest about 90% of the time Black victims have an arrest in their homicide just about 40% of the time. That's the worst disparity that we saw in any of the cities, but there are many cities where there is more than a 10% disparity between those two things.
1: What is life like for people who live in these communities where the chances that murders of their friends or loved ones will be solved are incredibly low? That, like, if you come forward and you talk to the police, there's no guarantee that the police will be able to protect you Or that if something happens to you, that police will make sure that that person who hurts you is brought to justice. And so there's no there's no sense of protection that would allow you the freedom to be able to be a witness or to be able to talk to police.
0: Well, you think about it, right? If you show up at my home and knock on my door and you say that you would like me to provide you with information about the murderer who lives next door to me, but you don't ever solve any murders, the Smart human calculus for me to make is no. What is
1: the solution to this? How can police departments stop this cycle?
2: Well, there's a lot of departments that are trying different things. I don't think there's like one uniform thing. In New Orleans, police superintendent Michael Harrison says it's not just the lack of consequences that's the problem, it's the lack of fear for consequences. And so he feels like in order to address their murder problem, they need to address the problem that they have with guns in the city, that there are just too many guns. So if they address the gun problem, then hopefully the number of killings will go down. But then you have other departments like the Houston Police Department, where the chief there noticed a pattern. He said, well, I noticed that some of these killings, people were shot. And they lived, and then eventually they were killed. So why don't we put some extra attention on the shootings that actually are not fatal, that don't result in a death,
1: because we might actually be preventing a killing. But that's just one police department. I mean, is there a widespread effort to try to stop this cycle? I
0: do think that police across the country recognize how the cycle works, right? That the cycle of impunity, uh, which is one of the main findings of our year of reporting, was something that many of the police officials were identifying immediately when we first sat down to talk to them. They said, yes, this is a real problem. We don't solve one homicide. We don't solve one crime. It leads to another.
2: I think one of the things as we talk to detectives and families across the country as well is A lot of the detectives who had a lot of success were people who actually built individual relationships with the family over a long period of time. One of the things that families complained about was getting a detective and hearing from them just a couple of times, or every time they heard from them, there was nothing new. No update, no update. And after a few no-update calls, They weren't getting calls at all. Their calls weren't getting returned. But detectives who continue to have that conversation,
1: even though I don't have an update, how are you doing? And then just as like a gesture of even though we haven't solved this case, we are still here for you.
2: Yeah, I'm not just calling about your case. Like, I care about your community. I care about your family. I care the fact that you didn't get this solved. I feel like I hear that from detectives, even in an area like South Central L.A., where, you know, years ago, killings were very difficult to solve, but you had detectives who were solving many of them because they said, if you don't immediately get a hit or information from somebody in the community, you know, go to the girlfriends, go to the aunties, go to the moms, and just continue to build a relationship from them, and eventually
1: you'll get somewhere. Kimberly L Kelly, Wesley Lowry, and Steve Rich contributed to the Post's Murder with Impunity series. Go to WashingtonPost.com/slash postreports, where you can find more from that project, including block-by-block mapping of homicides in more than 50 cities, by our database editor Ted Melnick. And now, one more thing. The food on your holiday table can carry generations of tradition. It can tell a story and make memories. And at some point, those traditions and responsibilities need to be passed on. The process of doing that can be kind of complicated. For food writer Becky Crystal, it started with pie crust.
4: My father-in-law has this pumpkin pie recipe I'm not even sure where it came from, but it's definitely on an old yellowed notebook, scribbled. And I said, well, at least let me try making the pie crust. And you can still do the filling. It's still the family recipe, but this is my little way I can try to give something.
1: And Becky kept going. Next, she started tinkering with her family's cranberry recipe.
4: So it's a very retro recipe. You use two cans of cranberries. You mix it with strawberry jello chopped apples and walnuts. It's something that sounds worse on paper, a lot worse, but I mean, people just totally tore through it. Then stuffing, homemade gravy, even whole pies, not just the crust. And now, instead of the pumpkin pie that I talked about, we now do a pumpkin tart that I do, which doesn't even use a regular pie crust. So, how far we've come.
1: If you want to take over holiday cooking for your family, Becky says that you should start small. And whenever possible, avoid stepping on toes.
4: People are willing to give it up. You know, they want you to they want the younger people to take on the traditions. They want the younger people to take on the cooking and the dish cleaning. So, just ask. It's a lot of conversation and communication and not just elbowing your way in. It's just making it a family affair, no matter who's doing it. Becky Crystal writes for the Post's cooking site
1: voraciously. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash If you liked what you heard on this episode, it would be great if you could take a second and leave us a review or tweet about the show with the hashtag #PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.